This is episode 108 of the Neuro Experience podcast. I'm Louisa. I'm your host. How does food affect the brain? How does nutrition correlate to cancer? And what is the real relationship behind the brain and the gut? Every question is answered in today's episode with Dr. Brian Durek, a gastroenterologist who specializes in diseases of the digestive system and the, digest- and the gastrointestinal tract. His love for nutrition came from understanding his own body and how it functions. In a pursuit to becoming fitter, healthier, and leaner, he discovered the science behind nutrition and how you can become a happier and better functioning human by understanding what you put in your mouth. Here we go. 1500 threads in my leaning sheets Look like you're missing waking up next to me Stay irrelevant's the only shit I'm focused on Like yesterday, you forever in the past of me Brian, I'm so excited to have you on the Neuro Experience podcast. I know you're going to bring a wealth of knowledge. We've been connected now for quite a while and I love everything that you speak about because not only are you an MD, a gastroenterologist, but also an executive health coach and you produce a lot of content around nutrition, which I don't see a lot of MDs doing and I love that. So I just want to pick your brain. I know my audience really, really, really loves the nutrition aspect of mental performance. And I know that you can actually start to tell us a bit more about the gut-brain relationship. You can talk to us about how foods affect our mindset and our brain, and we can talk about all things nutrition. So you can take it from here. Sounds good. Yeah. So, hey, my name is Brian Dorek. I'm a gastroenterologist, uh, clinical gastroenterologist. I practice in South Florida. And I've been in practice probably about 15 years already. I trained at University of Miami. And the truth of the matter is, is that there's very, very little nutrition training in medical school. And that's the sad truth of it all is that we, as physicians, go through a traditional four-year medical school education. And we spend literally probably in the context of minutes on nutrition. Now, that may have changed in the last decades as we become more conscious of food, nutrition, choices, health, and the awareness on a global, or at least on the, when the Western world and the media has improved. But again, the training is very minimal. And as far as doctors talking about it, you're right. People don't talk about it. And it's become, you know, there's become a lot of, let's say, self-proclaimed coaches and health coaches and wellness coaches and life coaches and this and that coach. And the truth of the matter is, you know, there's great people out there and there's there's also great doctors out there and there's bad doctors. So just be very cautious on who you gets your guiding, who does your guiding for you, who directs you. Um, in terms of nutrition for me, you know, how do I get onto social media platform and how do I get into social media as a physician who's practicing a clinical practice? Um, the truth of it is, is my platform is very clear. It's colon cancer screening and nutrition. And I really try to stay in my lane in terms of that. Colon cancer screening, evidently, because I'm a gastroenterologist, it's the bread and butter of what I do. I screen for colon cancer with colonoscopies, and I know that, you know, what I do saves lives. That's that's proven. We're one of the few screening tests that saves lives. And in terms of nutrition, we know that nutrition is definitely tied into people's performance, people's health, the chances and risk of cancer, colon cancer for one, among many other cancers. And in my own personal journey, the truth of it is, is I needed some resetting myself. So about a year ago, I kind of was, you know, I'm working out, I'm eating healthy, I think I'm eating healthy. 
and eating you know, a salad and throwing handfuls of walnuts on top of it and handfuls of dried fruit and scoops of hummus. And things that you think are healthy is true. It's healthy foods, but the portions were out of whack and the balance was out of whack and it was affecting you know my body composition. And so I shifted my diet with a coach myself and I lost about 15 pounds, leaned out, dropped some body fat, leaned out to where I wanted my body weight to be, and I've maintained it ever since, not through an extreme diet, not through elimination diet, not through fanatical fad diets, not through keto, not through one meal a day, not through starvation, not through elimination, not through intermittent fasting, but through balance, through portion control, through keeping nutrition simple, to eating smart and eating healthy. And that's kind of the tagline I use when I share and post things on social media. But do you really think that when it comes to nutrition that we've got a lack of education or do you think there's something else behind it? Because I, I know that anybody can just go and search, you know, uh, healthy meals, like things, to, you know, how to eat well, how to eat uh, well for your body type, how to lose weight. I don't think it's a lack of education. I think there's a mindset behind eating well. Complete. I think that, uh, you know, one, yes, people can go online and they can search also how to build an electric car, but not everyone's going to be able to produce Tesla and be Elon Musk. So yes, I think we are aware as a society much more nutrition now than we were obviously 10 years ago. Look at the airports. When you travel now, look at the food options you have in the airports now. It's a world different than what was 10 years ago. So the, 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 overall level of consciousness of nutrition has increased dramatically. Look at McDonald's, look at Burger King, look at the food choices they offer on their menus and fast food chains, salads and other things. And I'm not saying go to McDonald's and eat healthy. You can go to McDonald's and get a salad, but then you can throw on a big packet of Thousand Island dressing and negate all the health benefits of eating a salad. But is it better than having a Big Mac or a Whopper? Sure. So yes, I think there's... I think society as a whole is more aware, but we're also, I want to say, I'm not going to say brainwashed, we're clouded by a misperception and the mass marketing of these food industry in terms of what they're selling us. For how long was I drinking, I'm not going to, I don't know if I mentioned the name or not, but these green drinks, these super green drinks, you get at the, get them everywhere, gas stations, the supermarkets, they're in the, the produce aisle super green and you, you drink it you think you're eating a healthy meal oh i'm doing this i'm having some nuts i'm eating healthy it's like 52 grams of sugar in one of those little bottles of green juice it's a lot of sugar mm. what is so your, I um, that, sorry i cut you off yeah no i was just saying is i think that there's a misperception sometimes of what is healthy you know just because something market is healthy doesn't mean it's healthy so you got to really read the label, know what's in the process, the foods, stay away from the processed foods and be aware of what's being marketed to you as healthy. So you mentioned earlier colon screening, colon cancer. Is there a, a direct relationship between the foods that we eat and the growing rise of being diagnosed with colon cancer? Or is that something that is not yet definitive? No, quite definitive. I mean, colon cancer is the number three cause of cancer-related death in the country. It's going to be about 50,000 you know, people die from colon cancer this year, about 150,000 new cases. Oh the point being is, you know, take those numbers, but you, know, you say numbers and stats, and you're like, oh, 50,000, whatever. Every one person who has colon cancer or dies from colon cancer or goes through a battle with colon cancer 
affects how many people in their circle around them, how many immediate family members, how many friends, how many coworkers, how many relationships. So when cancer affects someone, it's not just one person, you know, the, the patient who has cancer. It's like, a, it's like a, a ripple effect around their life. So colon cancer, which is a common cancer and preventable by doing screening, typically with a colonoscopy is the most standard and gold standard of tests, is we know that a high red meat diet, a low, you know, fiber diet will increase your risk of colon cancer. So if you want to look wow. at it in, in, in the inverse way is a high fiber diet, low red meat diet will prevent colon cancer. So if you're on a plant-based diet and you're having a high fiber diet, and you're staying away from red meats and other foods of that nature, your chances of colon cancer are reduced in simple terms. Why is that? You know, I don't know the pathogenesis of this and that of why certain foods this will increase colon cancer per se versus other cancers. We know certain risk factors for cancers are more global. Obviously, smoking being one of them increases your risk of many cancers, not just lung cancer, but things like pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer. So and I don't want to get into the conversation too heavily. I don't want to upset anyone who's a strong carnivore. I personally don't eat meat. I grew up actually my whole life without meat, fish, or poultry. I started eating fish in college when I was in like close to 20. I eat fish now maybe twice a week, but most of my protein is plant-based. I don't eat poultry. I don't eat red meat at all. I have it in my whole life, and I am quite healthy without it. That's a choice. But if you want to get into the conversation of nutrition, and we'll get into a little bit more on the gut-brain axis soon and how foods are digested and how they affect the brain, which is a new and evolving field, I'll just kind of give you my two cents about food, if it's okay with you. You know, food is energy, right? Everything, if you put on infrared or heat goggles and you look around your, a room and you'll see where things light up, right? And what's going to light up? Body heat, right? You understand what I'm talking about? Those goggles when like the SWAT, team, the SWAT teams go in and take out the terrorists and they put on the infrared goggles. The point is there's energy fields around living matter, right? There's heats produced, there's energy. Take a carrot, take a green lettuce in the ground, take fresh produce. It's living. It's an energy form to it. If you take this carrot or you take the lettuce and put it in your refrigerator or take the Brussels, you know, the sprouts, there's still it's still living. It's still growing. You'll see still growth sometimes if you put like your, you know, um, like a potato, right? You'll see sometimes potato, little spuds will come off the potato. So even though it's pulled out of the ground and it's not going to live or last forever, there's still life and energy force in it. The difference is, you know, meat. It's dead matter. It's term. It's dead matter. It's it's a substance that's terminated usually in a pretty abrupt way. So the energy is captured at that moment, and it's and it's really there's no growth. If you take an apple, maybe that apple's rotting in your refrigerator because you haven't eaten it in three weeks and it's not looking good. But you throw it in the ground. A new apple tree will come from it, potentially, from the seeds. Same with your cucumbers, same with your tomatoes, same with, you know, any any of the fruits and vegetables that are seed-based, right? And the point being is there's something energetically about foods, about plant-based foods, that is not replicable or not reproducible with meat and mm. that matter. So that's in terms of energy. So if you ask me why do certain foods cause cancer and some don't, you don't see cucumbers, broccoli, and asparagus causing cancer in any cancer. But you hear red meat come up in terms of gastric cancer, 
the nitrates and the foods, the smoked foods over in Japan and Southeast Asia. So food definitely is tied into it. You know, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, but that's my take on energy and food and some of the choices, why I stick to the choices I made early in life through my family. Yeah, I, I really love this. It's um, it's interesting when you said I don't want to get too much of an uproar with what I'm going to say. I did put out an episode about um, somebody who only eats meat and it was it created a lot of buzz, especially yeah. on Instagram. So I understand yeah. that. Everyone's got their own views. Uh, I really want to tap into now certain foods such as sugar and how it affects or what you've seen, how sugar mainly can, can affect the brain and how we act. And I've read so, so many studies about the dangers of sugar and how it can be somewhat comparable to a, an illicit drug such as uh, cocaine, for example. And there, we're living in a world where everything, like you said, there is sugar in everything and we can become addicts of sugar. And we, if we have withdrawals, our brain kind of registers it as a withdrawal from a, a harmful drug. Now, I'm so interested in this area because it's sold to children. It's sold everywhere. It can be sold as a healthy snack, for example. I see, you know, some kids taking these snacks to school thinking they're having this apple pie, which is loaded with sugar, but they think it's, um, you know, it just comes down to misunderstanding or miseducation. They think they're eating something healthy. And I read this, you know, I speak a lot about brain inflammation, meaning that, Oftentimes we we don't know what brain inflammation is, literally inflammation of the brain, and we don't know if you know what are the symptoms of it. And I always say in a lot of my posts, I say that if you're you know if you're angry, if you're acting out, if you're depressed, if you're tired, if you're anything, it might not be a result of your environment. It might not be a result of some of the the things or scenarios that are happening in your life, but it might be a result of brain inflammation. And when you look at brain inflammation, you look at some of the leading causes of it and one of them, apart from lack of sleep, bad emotions, uh, one of them is sugar consumption. So what's your take on um, on sugar and how it affects the brain and the gut and the colon? Yeah, I, mean, I think we'll start just by basically sugar is like not a required nutrient. <laughs> you know, sugar <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not required. You know, our bodies don't crave for sugar. We, let's say we take that back. We crave for it because we've fed our bodies this addictive, you know, component of what sugar is. It kind of stimulates and creates a reward or similar to dopamine, but sugar is not really a required nutrient. Our body gets sugar naturally, and there's natural sugars, right? So what are mm-hmm. natural sugars? These are called carbohydrates, right? So where is a good place to get carbohydrates? So these are whole foods, things like fruits, vegetables, grains, and dairy, like lactose, it's a carbohydrate. Maybe you don't eat lactose. You're lactose intolerant. You don't have the enzyme lactase to break down the lactose. So again, you have sugars you consume, and our bodies break them down in the small bowel through chemical enzymes. And you know, if you don't have that enzyme, you're intolerant. You don't do well with certain sugars. So that's why people are lactose intolerant. They don't do well with the carbohydrate lactose. Some people are fructose, another you know natural you know, producing, you know, carbohydrate we can get. And so what we do is we break these down. Now, the body takes these sugars that come in the natural form, fruits, vegetables, grains, dairy, right? And we mm-hmm. break them down and we take that energy to our cells, all right? And we do that slowly. It's not like a rapid, like, infusion. You're not injecting yourself, like, with an EpiPen or, 
if you see that movie Pulp Fiction when she stabs the one with the, the yeah. needle in the heart. I mean, that's kind of not what we're doing with these plant-based and naturally-based foods. And there's a, you know, again, it, it, it's balance. Balance, balance is my key. The problem is the added sugar, you know, the added sugar is the issue. So the added sugar is what? This comes into processed foods. It's put on there to extend shelf life. It's put on there to enhance color, to enhance flavor. In the end, it's also kind of an addictive component. So that's why I went back to reading labels because we're not aware of it. But the sugar is just buried everywhere. Ketchup, Mm -hmm. you know, sugar. Breads, sugars. Obviously, jams and jellies and spread sugar. Salad dressings, sugars. I told you, even the green natural drink, you know, the, I forget the name of the company. It's like the Naked Juice. I hate to say, I'm sorry, Naked Juice, but that's the truth of it. It's like 52 grams of sugar. And so, Mm -hmm. just keeping it real. So, I'm very big on reading the labels so mm-hmm. you know where do you get this from where are you going to see it else you're going to see any grain-based desserts you'll see flavored yogurts colored yogurts candies obviously cereals you know there's ready like pour water in and your oatmeal is ready to go though the cinnamon flavored oatmeal it's all sugar a lot of sugar even teas and breads and syrups i mean anything that has an osc in it ends in os lactulose sucrose fructose it's a sugar, okay? And the CDC puts out good stuff. There's so much information about it. And, you know, what are we supposed to do? What's, you know, how much sugar are we supposed to consume? You know, you don't need that much. But is how much added sugar are people getting? People are taking probably somewhere in about 24 teaspoons of added sugar a day. According to the National Cancer Institute, I think, ran this. It was like three, four, five, close to 400 calories a day in added sugar. That's a lot of sugar. So, you know, basically about, the, I think the, I'm going to I'm going to actually looking, I want to look at something here. It says the American Heart Association suggests that men consume no more than around nine teaspoons of added sugar per day, or about 150 calories. That's about one 12 ounce can of soda, right? That's like, no, nine teaspoons. The average American, average male is probably consuming close to three times that. And that's a lot. That's just extra sugar, not needed. So, you know, again, I'm not a big fan of sugar. I'm eating sugar. I'm eating it naturally. I'm eating it also through added sugar, inadvertently or sometimes by choice. I went out last night. I had chocolate-covered, dark chocolate-covered raisins from Fresh Market. I had a handful after dinner. It's okay. That's balance. But I'm not. But how much is really affecting us? Again, it's got to go then to the gut-brain axis. You got to look and see what you're not. We're not eating the sugar, and it's going right to your brain, right? So everything you eat goes through a process of digestion, right? You start thinking about food, you're producing saliva. You're already producing saliva. You're producing enzymes in your stomach. You're producing acid when you're thinking about food before you even eat. It starts that process, like Pavlov's dogs. Here's the bell. The dogs salivate. So. You start chewing in food, you start chewing in your mouth, you're breaking it down, it's mixing with saliva, it's mixing with enzymes, it breaks down through chemically and through me- uh, mechanical. You swallow it in your esophagus, it goes to your stomach, the food gets churned up with acid and all the mixed up in this muscular dishwasher, basically, for a couple hours. And then slowly it gets pushed through the pylorus, this muscle that separates the stomach and the small bowel, and it goes into your small bowel, which is where the absorption happens, Right. Now, the small bowel is this long, convoluted tube. This long, convoluted tube all throughout is 
the surface area of where the absorption happens. It's not flat. You have these villi, these finger-like projections. So imagine a flat piece of paper, right? Think how, and you spill water on it, and it's, you know, that's the area the water is going to cover. But imagine you take millions and millions and millions of tiny finger-like projections, like uh, little spikes coming out of the paper. Suddenly your surface area is no more flat. It's millions of folds, or maybe it's an exaggeration. Yeah, millions of folds more in terms of surface area where the absorption can take place. That's the benefit of the small bowel. That's why it has these villi, V-I-L-L-I, to increase surface area. If someone has celiac disease or sprue or gluten, insens- gluten sensitivity, they lose these villi. The allergic reaction to the gluten product, and that's another whole conversation. I'm not going down that road, but the someone has celiac disease and true gluten allergy, they lose that villi and they lose that absorptive space there. So what happens is on these villi, there's cells. There's a layer of skin, basically, cells, epithelial cells. These cells, though, have a unique function because they have hormones that come out of them. And they're connected to neurons. They're connected to the vagus nerve. They're connected to your nervous system. And there's like this two-way road between your your bowels, your small bowel, your these cells, and your brain through the vagus nerve. It goes up and goes down. So when you're eating food and certain foods go on and get absorbed and get mixed and there's spasm and things are moving, your body is sending signals electronically to your brain to do things. So now becomes a question to you about, you know, what goes in. There comes a question of something called the microbiome. The microbiome is this kind of... That's a big buzzword right now. Yeah, the microbiome, microbiome, everyone called microbiome is the one I use. It's basically this like massive living organism within your body that consumes a, such a massive role in your overall health, physical health and mental health, right? Affects your mood, your brain. If this microbiome is basically a battleground between good and bad bacteria. Now, again, I don't want to go back on a tangent, but let's go back, you know, thousands of years, right? When there was no C-section births, everyone was born vaginally. So you're in a sterile environment in the womb and you're in your mother for nine months and then you're born. And when you're born through the vaginal canal, you're suddenly, boom, ex- exposed to bacteria, viruses, all sorts of craziness, right? When you come out from a C-section, you come out of a sterile environment within the womb to a sterile doctor's gloves, to a sterile towel, to a sterile crib or, you know, crib or bassinet. It's like sterile, sterile, sterile. So your microbiome already is being challenged in terms of its natural role in evolution. And the natural role in evolution, again, not going off tangent, don't upset anyone mentioning evolution, but our bodies are designed over millions of years to function a certain way, and the microbiome functions to provide a healthy battleground for consumption of nutrients, the production of hormones to send signals to the brain. So in terms of what you're eating and what you're producing, it's all keeping that microbiome in sync or out of sync. Are you having good bacteria winning or are you having bad bacteria? And that's, and that's the issue. And if your microbiome is offset and not providing the balance in terms of health, then the signals it's going to get to the brain are going to be affected. And there comes in mood, yeah. 
depression, yeah. anxiety, etc. And that's the gut-brain axis. And I'm not looking to get heavy, deep, and complicated and stuff because I'm not even that familiar with it. It's an evolving field where there's dedicated people have dedicated their whole careers to understanding this. But that's the general premise of it. These these enteroendocrine cells, these entero these intestine hormone cells is a good way to put it that send electric signals to the brain. But the, you know, the, you know, and we'll talk more. Talk this, you know. I mean, that's that's the gut brain axis. But going to the back to your question about sugar and your mood and the brain. So, what sugar giving you? It's a reward, right? What's the reward? It's a feeling. It's a it's a stimulation caused by something called dopamine, right? Dopamine dopamine makes you feel good. We know that. You know, in terms of you're winning, having a good business deal, you're winning the negotiation, your dopamine's shooting off. Mm-hmm. When, you're, when you're getting pulled over by a cop, your dopamine's not doing that well. That's the, the difference, right? And foods like, you know, the natural foods, like the whole grain foods, the fruits, the vegetables, you know, naturally produce dopamine at the levels they want. It's when we have these added sugar, we're getting these surges of dopamine. We get addicted to it. That's where the addictive and the craving comes back and forth. Mm-hmm. So does that make sense? Does that make sense what I'm getting at? No, it makes perfect sense. What I'm thinking about now is I'm wondering how many people out there who is getting into this and really understanding the microbiome and how important it is, how many people out there are wanting to go and test this? Because I know now, and I don't know if this is true or not, maybe you can shed some light on it. There are things where you can do at home testing and say, you know, you get a, a microbiome test at home, then you do what you have to do and send it back. Is that the best way to actually test your microbiome or you go somewhere and do it? I would probably say it's probably the best way to spend money that has no effect in your overall health, if you ask my honest opinion. Okay. And it's, probably up, it's probably up there with colon cleansers. So, yes, there's, there's a, it's, it's a novel concept to test your microbiome, but I think that the technology and the direction of it is not there yet. So you're testing your microbiome to know what your co- composition is, but how does that affect, how does that affect, what's the outcome of that test? Are you going to suddenly take, okay, you're going to take medicine a, and if someone else tests it, you're going to take medicine B? No. They're going to say, go take some probiotics. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't think that the testing is going to change management in any way. I think that the concept is eating smart, eating healthy, eating whole, you know, whole grain foods, natural-based foods, focusing on a plant-based protein diet, staying away from processed foods, staying away from the sugars, will keep the microbiome in a healthier place. Which, okay, was it, you know, kefir? I don't drink it myself, but this is going back, you know, it's years yeah. where people are drinking this, you know, soured milk, which is really what probiotics are to some degree, you know, or one variation of it. You know, the kefir is they sell it. They sell it in my supermarket. I, I don't drink it myself, but people do. They eat sauerkraut and they eat, you know, is it? Um, there's another. There's another few other dishes out there that people gravitate to for the micro, for the micro. For me, I don't. You know, I. I eat a healthy, natural, plant-based diet. I don't see any issues for myself. I do recommend over-the-counter probiotics to certain patients, quite commonly. There's some big name brands out there, like Align or Floristore, or you know, to name a few. But Whole Foods probably has about probably 50 to 100 on their shelf, if not less or more. But it's um, you know, the options are there. I don't think testing has a real role yet. But it will one day have a role in terms of drug targeted therapy. 
All right. And last but not least, water consumption and alcohol. How much water should um, we be drinking? And is alcohol definitely as bad as what they say? And is one glass of wine a night okay? (laughs) I would say water. I try to consume four liters of water a day, personally. It's, um, and the way I do it is this. So, you know, I have my, my breakfast is usually a plant-based breakfast. So I'll have like a big Nutribolt. I'll load it up with spinach, kale, any greens I have. I'll put two scoops of plant-based protein and I use Orgain plant-based protein for me. And then I throw in a carbohydrate, a sugar, but my sugar is what? A banana or some blueberries or I'll have an apple on the side, and I'm basically having a green-based drink with some water in it. That's fine. But around 10 or 11, I'll have protein with some handful of nuts. So I'll have fat, nuts or a fat, and some protein. But my protein, when I take it, I'll mix it with basically 500 cc's or half a liter of water, drink it, and I'll take another half a liter of water. That's one liter right there. And then some around 11 or 12, I'll have another liter of water, just straight liter. And then I'll have lunch, whatever, on one and I'll do the same thing in the afternoon. So I'm getting about four liters in. Another way to do water consumption is have a liter going into work, a liter coming home from work, and drink a liter in between the day, catch a liter at night. You know, it's, it, there's ways to do it. I don't play around with having glasses. I just take the liter and drink it. Now, that's me. But, uh, you know, four, three, four liters a day minimum is great for water. In terms of alcohol, moderation. Yes, there's benefits to, wine, to red wine. There's benefits in the French paradox. Not disputing that. I think you listened to Arthur Agatson talk the other day on a podcast in Florida here and, you know, mentioned it too. But it's balance. So you want to go out, go have a glass of wine, go have a, have a drink, do live your life. But in balance with portion control, no need for extremes, no need for fanaticism. That's my feelings. That's my two cents. I'm not going to live a life of weighing food and getting crazy like that. You're talking to a doctor who has obsessive tendencies as it is. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go down that road with food where I'm weighing food and measuring food and calculating calories. It's broad strokes. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Um, Brian, what is the last piece of advice that you can give to all of our listeners? I'd say, you know, if you've heard of the word microbiome before and haven't read about it, or you heard about it tonight for the first time, and microbiome is a new word to you, read about it. I personally did, like, my blogs I put on my website are about two-minute reads. I keep them short and simple. And no one has the attention span beyond that personally. If someone wants to read deeper, they're going to go into, you know, Wikipedia, and then they're going to go to journals and start searching much, much deeper. But to keep it simple focus, I have two short articles, if not more, on the microbiome. Glance at them if they interest you. Feel free to reach out and message me or contact me. My LinkedIn is where I focus my attention on social media. Um, you can find me there. I post every day, usually a video or something, some type of content of what I believe value in my space, which is nutrition and cancer, colon cancer screening. So I think learn about the microbiome, I would say, because that's really the future where we're going. The gut-brain access, obviously a focus to your listening audience and a focus to many. It's... Um, it's up in front and center. It's it's really front and center what's going on in terms of GI targeted therapy and where the future will be going mm-hmm. and probably gene therapy the same. Not there yet, but it's definitely the direction. 
That's amazing. Ryan, thank you so much for being on here. I'm going to link everything in the show notes below. You've been wonderful and you've just inspired me to um, switch from my oats. And look, my I mean, in the morning for breakfast, I have oats and I have organic uh, plant protein powder with water. So, okay. I mean, we didn't even touch on plant protein powder. I mean, but I love it. It's so I easy. I do too. It's fine. Oh, you're okay with that? Great. Yeah, I, I use Orgain. Orgain. I use Orgain is the product I use, but there's a million out there. Just find the good one that works for you. There's a handful of them. But I, have your oats in the morning. Have your water-based. Have your protein. You know, you know what, what, what you don't want to do is have your oats, which is a carbohydrate, and then add blueberries on top of it and add agave syrup on top of it or honey <laughs> on top of it then add milk or almond milk or oat milk on top of it. And then you're yeah, like, yeah. then you're then you're carb loading with sugars, even though they're, they're whole grain and natural sugars. That's where the balance gets out. So I'd say have your oats with have you know with a little bit of dash of oat milk or almond milk or whatever you're drinking. You know, have your your protein. You know, take your protein and, and add as much greens as you want. Spinach. I just take spinach and just put it in a little NutriBullet with that protein, and have a green shake. You know, it's it's just a really I, that's what I recommend. Power down the greens continually through the day. There's greens, no, there's greens, no, greens. no, no, no limit of greens. <laughs>